this is episode 70. Welcome to another episode of All Hazards. This time around, we'll take a look at how the Native American population in California influences the considerations, decisions, and overall response and recovery operations for disasters and emergencies. Governor Gavin Newsom has renewed efforts to restore trust and cooperation with tribes throughout the state, starting with a long overdue public apology. We apologize on behalf of the citizens of California to all California Native Americans. And that's just the beginning of a long road to tribal relations and healing. We can't change the history, but we certainly need to portray the accurate history in the state of California. Earning the trust of a tribe begins with a genuine desire to understand their culture and their leadership within the context as a sovereign state. The level of that those leaders are, they're not at the same level as our governor. They're at the same level as the president of the United States. Emergency response and recovery efforts are often affected by tribal lands, ancestral lands, and cultural artifacts that are discovered there. If something is found, they have to, you know, catalog it, and then they have to hurry up and reintern it. It's a sensitive dilemma that requires immediate attention and diplomacy by a state tribal advisor. A dilemma that could be made worse by the actions of those just trying to help, such as out-of-state mutual aid. When you come into the state of California, understanding you're here, you're coming to bear with all your resources to help California out, but do your homework. Tribal Affairs, right now. With me in the studio right now is the one and only Denise Sheminsky, who is the Tribal Advisor for Cal OES. Welcome and good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Great, great to have you here. I've been wanting to uh, get someone from Tribal in here uh, for quite some time. And now that I have you here, you're mine for the next half hour or so. so Alrighty. Yeah. So give me a little bit of kind of a thumbnail sketch about your background. How did you come to Cal OES and, and when and what happened before that? All righty. Whoa, we've got a long time here. That's then. a lot of stuff right there. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I came to OES in 1999. Um, I used to be a firefighter at Cal Fire and uh, was recruited by Chief Zagaris and uh, said, hey, you need to come check out this emergency management stuff. So I, that's how I came to Cal OES. Uh, started in the fire and rescue branch and then um, did a summer summer stint there and then moved over into the warning center was in the warning center for about a year, a little less than a year, and then moved into the executive staff uh, running the state operations center at mm. that time when uh, our director was the chief deputy director for Cal OES. Um, from there, oh gosh, um, I think it was after 9-11. I stayed there for about three or four years, uh, and it was just after 9-11 that uh, I had moved over into the law enforcement division and was going to head up the, um, the state threat assessment uh, committee, which mm -hmm. was just after 9-11, that, that uh, committee was stood up, identifying and looking at, uh, you know, terrorist acts and different uh, planning, um, things like that. Um, from there, that's when they created the Office of Homeland Security. And um, I actually went over to Office of Homeland Security representing Cal OES as the emergency management uh, individual. They made up a team, an exercise team that was comprised of different uh, departments, um, to create the Golden Guardian series. And oh, yeah. at that time, I was heading up all the state agency portion of the exercise. 
um, ended up staying at uh, Office of Homeland Security. And then when we merged in 2008, I came back <laughs> to Cal OES. Great. Well, we're lucky to have you. Thanks for, uh, for your uh, service here at Cal OES. My next question is uh, a little more current uh, to your position. Tell me what a tribal advisor is and what the responsibility of that position is. Okay. Um, at the time when I was at Homeland Security, um, there was millions of dollars coming into the state and the tribal communities, unfortunately, were not, um, didn't really have much access to that funding. So at the time, the secretary came to me and said, you know, Denise, he says, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but, you know, are you Native American? And I said, I am. And he says, um, we have a really bad reputation, poor relationship with the tribal communities. What can we do to build that relationship? And so from there, um, that's when I got into being a tribal advocate, um, kind of bringing the tribes together, getting an understanding of uh, what their needs were. And obviously at that time, their needs were they needed some of this uh, Homeland Security funding. Um, so basically my role as a tribal advisor, tribal liaison, tribal advocate, whatever you want to call it, they're all, they all take on different names, but essentially we're doing the same. Uh, we're advocating for a community, an underserved community. That um, unfortunately, you know, over years past, um, there really, really hasn't been an understanding of working with tribes and understanding their true sovereign state. Um, you know, we're, we've got a nation within the nation. Um, and there are certain inherent rights, inherent rights that tribal communities have. And so in order to understand those, you really have got to build that trust and that um, relationship and that rapport. And so in essence, I am the point of contact for Cal OES uh, with all tribal communities here in the state of California, uh, federally recognized. We have 109 federally recognized tribes here. Uh, in addition to the 109, we have over 70 plus non-federally recognized tribes. And what that means is those were tribes that were stripped of their recognition back in the 50s um, by the federal government and since then have been fighting to regain that uh, recognition back. Just as a point of history, why did that happen? Was it the same reason for each of those tribes or were there many reasons? Uh, many reasons. I think at the time, you know, we had a lot of issues um, here in the state of California. Unfortunately, uh, California has a very uh, dark history with our Native American tribes. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it was for the land. A lot of it was, you know, you think about uh, back in the, the 1800s, what was going on here in the state of California, the gold rush was going. Um, you have the railroad that was being put up and right where all of these, uh, these items were, you know, obviously they were in tribal lands. And so a lot of the tribes were moved off of their lands and, uh, the treaties, when the treaties were being enacted, they were being enacted back in D.C. And unfortunately, we were here on the West Coast, the California, and their treaties never made it back. Mm. So unfortunately, like I said, the, the state of California has a very dark history when it comes to the tribes. And uh, today we do have a governor that has really been proactive. Um, he has really taken the stance where he's actually formally apologized uh, from the atrocities, from you know, the genocide that has happened to the Native Americans here, specifically in California. We apologize on behalf of the citizens of California, to all California Native Americans, for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, neglect, murder inflicted on the tribes. And so it's a, you know, tribes are looking at this as a new way of building this relationship at the state level. Um, again, understanding that tribes have that sovereign right, meaning that they have a government-to-government -government relationship with the federal government, not necessarily with the state um, and or local government. 
And um, so with that, um, this governor has really been proactive in um, building those relationships and really it's not just a, you know, no apology means nothing unless there's an action behind it. It's a monumental task. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're looking at hundreds of, hundreds of years of, you know, um, uh, this marred history that we have. And um, so not only has he taken this apology to the level that he's taken it, but he is now implementing a healing uh, advisory committee. And how can we understand an apology is an apology and we can't change the history, but we certainly need to portray the accurate history in the state of California uh, and across the nation, but obviously here in the state of California. And so with that, he's really taken an initiative in really correcting the history and starting with K through 12. Um, how do we truly portray what has really happened to the Native Americans here in the state of California? And, and his uh, his marching orders are putting together this advisory committee. And how do we do that? Well, we've got to, again, we've got to reflect that accurate history in order to, we need to understand where we came from in order to know where we want to go and uh, building those relationships. Seems to me that whenever a disaster comes in, that's where sort of the, the rubber meets the road and how California treats those tribes assuming that they are affected directly or even indirectly by these disasters, such as, let's say, the campfire. How did your office come to interface with uh, the tribes that were affected by the campfire? For the campfire, um, although this was, you know, the largest uh, fire in the history in the state of California, uh, remarkably, we had no federally recognized tribes on tribal lands that were, that sustained any damages. Um, thank goodness to that. In previous fires, certainly, you know, when we're looking at the Valley Fire and we're looking at the Mendocino Fire, we had several communities that were affected by those fires on their trust lands. Um, the challenge that we have and the way we start off with any time, whether it's fire, flood, uh, earthquakes, um, what we do is we start uh, garnering and gathering information and situational awareness in our communities. Um, you know, we really take pride in in developing our um, contact list with all of our communities and trying to keep that and manage that is is an undertaking of itself because, you know, you have constant change everywhere, just like, you know, in state government and any entity. Um, but with that, we really take pride in, in knowing that we have a pretty accurate list of our communities. And as we continue building these relationships with these communities, we're going to get that 24-7 uh, point of contact. So when we do get into a, a disaster such as a campfire, we're able to reach out, uh, assess what their needs are, if there's any needs, um, you know, and just to gather some situational awareness on how they're being affected, whether it's evacuations or they're um, actually, you know, is the fire encroaching upon their, their lands. Um, most of the time what happened with the campfire, obviously we had a big footprint with a lot of evacuations. Mm-hmm. Um, we had tribal members within the community and we had tribal um, uh, reservations that were evacuated, but not because the fire was on there. It was because of precautionary. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we had a really, really great uh, outpouring with the tribal communities because of the fact that they weren't affected um, by the fire itself. We do have several communities that had the ability to, um, to house uh, fire survivors. Um, they reached out. Uh, we have one community in Oroville that actually was housing fire survivors in their overflow of their RV park mm-hmm. um, for free. And that was something that no one, we it took us about a week or two to realize that they were doing that. And um, 
the state came in and the county, we all came in and we were able to support them because they were concerned with um, the overflow and what was going on with their um, their sewage system. And so we were able to, you know, put into contract and, and assist those fire survivors so that we can offload, you know, the dirty water and, and items like that mm. so that the, the tribe didn't have to absorb that and have any concerns of, you know, any uh, overflows on their, on their systems, their own systems. Um, we had another community in um, uh, Corning, California, that, you know, immediately the communities that weren't affected, you know, they were calling our office, hey, if there, if there are any needs out there with those tribal communities. And so, you know, part of our uh, uh, responsibility is, you know, well, we have a lot of tribal members, we have a lot of community members that um, have been affected by this. And one thing about the tribes, you know, even though they may be a little bit... Um, um, apprehensive with working with government, um, certainly from the communities that they come in, that they that they reside in, that they share those bor those borders with, um, they're so embracing. Uh, we had um, the tribe in Corning, Pasquenta, who reached out to us and said, you know, we have an RV park. Um, we certainly can set up. You know, uh, if you have any uh, fire survivors that need a campsite. Um, and with that, we were able to can make that connection with FEMA once FEMA came uh, came on board, and FEMA actually expanded their RV park, and uh, they were able to give us 50 spots for fire survivors um, and identify those. And whether they were tribal members or not, um, it was anybody that needed it. And obviously, yeah. it went through the FEMA process, you know, getting sure. them. Uh, uh, identified the needs and, and prioritized. Right. I was out there for that. I saw the, uh, they had different kinds of basically travel trailers Correct. that, that were outfitted, including pots, pans, and all the things that they needed. And, uh, it was great to see, and they made them, um, accessible as well for those who needed, uh, the accessibility aspect of it, building stairs and ramps and things like that. That was, it was really cool to see that. It was, and it's uh, as I mentioned, we have um, you know tribes across the state, not just in the geographical area of the campfire. We had tribes across the United States, let alone California, that were just were reaching out to our office. How can we help? I mean, there were so many communities that really wanted to help, and obviously, when they're coming further and further away from the footprint of the campfire, you know, we're looking at more of monetary, and so how do we do that? And so we had some nonprofit organizations that stood up and said, we will take. You know, we will take in on behalf of those campfire um, survivors and um, make sure that that funding goes to them. So it was really, really um, evident to see that the tribes uh, really come together, not just for their own people, but as a community as a whole. So because they weren't directly impacted by the campfire, your job and your office the job is to really kind of monitor, maintain the relationships, make sure that they don't have any unmet needs. We'll get to her response to that in just a moment. Up next, you better know where you stand when dealing with a tribal council and their leader. The level of that those leaders are, they're not at the same level as our governor. They're at the same level as the president of the United States meaning that they can pick up the phone and they can have a conversation with the President of the United States. Tribal lands, along with ancestral lands and the artifacts that could be found on them, can delay a response and recovery mission. If something is found, they have to, you know, catalog it and then they have to hurry up and re-intern it. So planning off the battlefield is critical and that applies to out-of-state mutual aid too. When you come into the state of California, understanding you're here, you're coming to bear with all your resources to help California out, but do your homework. Let's get back to our conversation with Cal OES Tribal Advisor, Denise Sheminsky. So because they weren't directly impacted by the campfire, your job and your office, 
the job is to really kind of monitor, maintain the relationships, make sure that they don't have any unmet needs. Correct. Correct. And because there were no tribes that were um, affected directly from the fire itself on their lands, um, as we moved over and started uh, going into recovery, then that's where the, the heavy lift was from our office. Uh, after just maintaining that situational awareness and having calls, just like we do when we stand up the State Operations Center, we have our what's called a TAC-G, a Tribal Assistance Coordination Call. Um, usually, depending on the geographical area, we'll do it geographically, or if it's a, the magnitude of the campfire, a lot of tribes, as I mentioned, were asking questions about the event. Um, so we held a statewide TAC-G call. And in essence, that call was just basically an update of what we were doing, what the state was doing. Um, you know, if we're moving towards a federal uh, declaration, um, if there are any outstanding resources um, and any partnerships that are that are really coming to the table to help those individuals that have been affected by it. How valuable were those calls? Those calls were very valuable. Um, we usually, we don't set the tone of those calls. We, uh, we let the tribes set the tone. Initially, I would say we started doing our first TAC-G call about three days into the call into the fire, and um, every single time that we start up the call, we let the tribes know at that time. And it and the call is is uh, attended by chairs chairs, which is the leaders uh, leadership of the tribal communities. Usually, they're emergency managers, um, they're tribal fire, uh, tribal police if they have a tribal police. Um, EPA, it's multitude of different representatives within a tribal community that attend those uh, those calls. And so the call is driven, we set an agenda, but the call is driven obviously by the tribal communities themselves and what they're looking for. We also have our federal partners that um, participate on that call. So if there are any outstanding needs, certainly we can have either FEMA, uh, Indian Health Services, uh, also known as IHS, BIA, Bureau, Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, and uh, any other state agencies that is pertinent to to the event itself that come to to participate on that call. So if there's questions asked from that government-to-government relationship, mm. they certainly have that opportunity to ask those questions. So given the, the, the dark history, as you said, uh, between California and the tribes, um, it seems to me, and I'm assuming this, that it's really important to reassure the tribes that the state is there especially because we don't have to deal with them directly. They don't have to deal with us, mostly between the feds and the tribes. Um, is reassurance an important role of, of your office? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the challenges that tribal communities have is, you know, tribal uh, communities are very relational uh, individuals and communities, meaning that um, it's not what I always say. It's not doing. It's not like uh, doing business with a county or a city. It's not business as usual. I can pick up a phone and I certainly can get a hold of somebody on the phone. You know, in any county or city. Uh, when you're looking at the tribal communities, um, usually, you know, their their makeup of their leadership is they have a tribal chairperson, chairwoman, chairperson, president, uh, whatever they call them. But you have to remember. The level of that those leaders are, they're not at the same level as our governor. They're at the same level as the president of the United States, meaning that they can pick up the phone and they can have a conversation with the president of the United States. That's the level. No wow. That's the level that they are at. And I think that's it's an education that we're always educating, you know, uh, individuals that that's the level that that tribal communities are. They are, have a makeup of tribal councils, which is anywhere between five to seven council members, you know, a, a secretary, a um, historian, a tribal uh, administrator. So working with them um, is, is, par is paramount on us in developing those relationships. 
Um, I have relationships from the chairpersons all the way down to the staff people. Mm-hmm. We have to be very careful in that uh, in that in those relationships because when we are um, dealing with the tribal leadership, uh, we have to be sensitive to the cultural sensitivities. We have to understand their leadership and their position. You know, it's not uh, it's not a casual relationship. It's a it's a very very uh, professional relationship in understanding that when we are talking to a chairperson. That we don't talk to them like, oh, hey, how are you, Sean? There's a certain level of respect. There's a certain level of respect, just Mm -hmm. like we wouldn't address the president of the United States. Hey, Don, how are you? I mean, that's president, you know, know, president or President Trump. Whereas our tribal leaders, it's chairman, chairwoman, um, unless they themselves, but even then, there's still a level of respect. You may have, and I do have many relationships with a lot of our tribal leaders, but in a forum when we are talking, whether it's a conference call or in a meeting, um, there has to be that formality in For understanding sure. that. Well, there's a lot at stake too. Um, when it comes to uh, disasters and emergencies, ensuring the protection of those lands and the cultural sites, you need to find out what those are and then convey that to the state and federal teams that are working those sites. Correct. And the local jurisdictions and the local as well. Jurisdictions, yeah. And you know what's so funny is that, see, tribal communities, you know, they're a very resilient um, uh, people. Uh, obviously, um, when you look at the genocides that happen, and they're still here today, um, tribal communities have been doing emergency management probably long before than we've been doing right. them. Yeah. Uh, we just have a label. They may not have a label. And so oftentimes when I go into these communities and I ask them, what are you doing to prepare for a flood or a fire? And they tell me, and I'm like, guess what? You're doing emergency management. You're doing planning. They just don't have the Western you know, uh, titles to it. Um, But we do find a lot of our communities today, they are really developing their programs. They are really uh, coming alongside with local jurisdictions, state jurisdictions, and, you know, an education on both sides. They're learning how we do business. We're learning how they do business. And I think we can find a happy medium to where we can be able to help them. They can help us. You know, a lot of our communities are starting to build a lot of their resources. When you look at some of the tribal communities down in Southern California and in Northern California, um, they have some pretty sophisticated fire engines, and they are becoming a part of the programs that we have, and they are really becoming more resilient in how how can we better not just our own community, but the community that we share our borders with, meaning those counties. For sure. You mentioned tribal monitors earlier. How many of those do we have here in California? So tribal monitors, it's a it's a rough number. It's very difficult. So not every tribal community may have tribal monitors. Um, tribal monitoring has uh, really taken on a new life of its own, especially after the campfire. Mm. Each federally recognized tribe may or may not have what's called a TIPO, a Tribal Historic Preservation Officer. Mm. And in, in essence, that individual is responsible for the preservation of that particular tribe's uh, preservation of their culture, whether it's cultural sites, cultural practices, cultural medicines, cultural plants, you know, whatever with, is within their footprint. Um, we also have to remember that not only on their federal lands, which is their trust lands, but we have what's called ancestral lands. Ancestral lands are um, areas that where tribal communities in history have gravitated. When you look at tri- tribes, they're very, um, um, during the seasons, they gravitated to different areas for obvious reasons because of you know the different weather, the different seasons. 
Um, and so they may have gravitated. You may have a tribe that is in Placer County. Let's give you an example, UAIC, United uh, Auburn of Indian, Com Indian Community, which is at Thunder Valley. Everybody mm. knows their casino, mm. but it's not the name of the tribe. No. Um, they, you know, most of their jurisdiction is going to be Placer County and probably Sacramento County along the rivers. You know, tribal communities gravitated through the rivers, you know, during the different seasons, during the salmon runs, during the different seasons, whether it's winter, summer, or spring. And so what they call ancestral areas is that they may have ge uh, geographical or what's called linguistical maps from there that's been passed down through their right. histories of the areas that their people gravitated to. So when they gravitated or when they migrated to different areas, obviously if any individuals passed away, they may have reinterned them in those locations. And so those uh, those areas are very sensitive to those tribal communities. For sure. But they're not necessarily recognized by the federal government, Right. Or I mean, in terms of being part of the tribal lands. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It's it, that's why they called it. They call it ancestral, ancestral lands. So lands. lands that they may have their people migrated and right. walked through, but they are sensitive to the tribes themselves. And that's what we saw with the campfire. As I mentioned, we did not have any trust lands that had been damaged, but uh, during the recovery phase and the debris removal. Um, that's where it is a requirement, obviously this was a federal disaster and per FEMA, that we have to ensure that um, if there's any ground disturbance, and that's where you're going to find tribal monitoring that it's going to occur. We do tribal monitoring, not we, but the tribes do tribal monitoring day to day during projects mm. uh, with the counties and with the cities and, and with state departments. Um, it's a little bit different though, because they, when you're doing tribal monitoring for a planned project, you have a lot more time if they, you know, they have specific areas that they know, you know, we know that there may be some sensitive sites, gives them an opportunity to test their grounds for cityums and, and different things. But when we are in a debris removal, We'll let her wrap that up in just a minute. Debris removal, a big part of the recovery phase of a disaster, poses difficult challenges for tribal advisor Denise Shemensky, especially when artifacts are uncovered. If something is found, they have to, you know, catalog it, and then they have to hurry up and re-intern it. As odd as it may be, they cannot remove any of those artifacts off of that private property because it belongs to the private property owner. That is something that's sometimes forgotten by out-of-state mutual aid, which can cause a tribe and a tribal advisor a whole host of problems. When you come into the state of California, understanding you're here, you're coming to bear with all your resources to help California out, but do your homework. Back to our chat with Cal OES tribal advisor, Denise Sheminsky. You know that we are always obviously in a fast-paced mode. You've got heavy equipment. There's a criteria, you know, for anybody being on the ground, safety criteria you have to have a HAZWOPER, which is a hazardous um, uh, materials operational level uh, because you're working around hazardous materials. Um, you have to, you know, the tribes aren't given that opportunity to really sit down and write out and study and do this. It's If something is found, they have to, you know, catalog it, and then they have to hurry up and re-intern it. Mm -hmm. uh, and re-interning it means that on private properties, they cannot remove, uh, as odd as it may be, they cannot remove any of those artifacts off of that private property because it belongs to the private pro property owner. Wow. 
And I know I get it's a whole nother level of complication. It is, it It is. But uh, you know, everybody and um, you help navigate that. We do. It was uh, it was a challenge. We had in this particular event. This is the largest event that we've ever had, where we had over eighty monitors. Oh, Um, we had a total of eleven tribes, and probably should back up a little bit because often this is a question that always gets asked. Well, how do you know what tribes to reach out to for these ancestral lands since it's beyond the footprint of their reservation? And uh, through the Native American Heritage Commission, um, any time that we get an event such as a campfire, once the fire is contained, um, we pull together a uh, request to the Native American Heritage Commission with the mapping of the footprint of the fire, and we send it off to them requesting a contact list. They are responsible for maintaining a contact list of all tribes, whether they're federally recognized or non-federally recognized. And that's due to a law, um, uh, Senate Bill uh, 11. 18, excuse me, Senate Bill 18. Uh, And basically that's just stating that the state will ensure that we will protect or assist to protect any of these historical sites or artifacts or sensitive areas to the tribes, whether they're federally recognized or non-federally recognized. So with that, the Native American Heritage Commission um, looks at the map. They've got their list and their database. They pull it. They usually get it to us within a couple of days. And then we get our contact list. And from there, we have a standard letter we send out to those tribes stating that we are going to be doing this action. In this case, this was the debris removal operation. Um, there will be ground disturbance. If your community wishes to um, to participate in tribal monitoring, please notify us and let us know and we will start working with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a total of 11 tribes within the footprint of the campfire. Of the 11, we had a total of five tribes that agreed to tribal monitoring. Uh, what are really sort of the, the key issues that, that you guys have to sort of maintain or address maybe throughout the year, but also during those times of emergency? So if you had to bulletize them, what, what would you say those would be, the things that are on the top of mind? I think the uh, things that are top of mind is early communication. Okay. Um, communication, communication. And I would imagine that re- that probably goes in hand in hand with any of oh. our clients that we work with in California, but specifically the tribes. Often tribes, as I mentioned earlier, they are an underserved community and sometimes they do get overlooked. Um, and so the, early, the soonest that we can communicate, the better that we're going to be able to address any of their concerns or needs. You know, a good example of that, that even people sometimes don't think, oh, well, you don't have to talk to them. If they're they're not affected, then you're looking at the recovery. Um, no, when you're looking at any time a fire hits and let's say Cal Fire is going to uh, put a bulldozer down, the earlier that you can notify those tribal communities, and Cal Fire is responsible and we, are, we work collectively together with Cal Fire, if they're going to put a blade down to understanding this is protecting the community, but they could potentially put a blade down that may be sensitive to a tribe, maybe a burial site or maybe a gathering uh, site. And so the sooner that that the tribes can be notified, hey, they're going to be this expected action is going to occur, even though it's during a, that response phase. Wow. Um, so there are going to be people who say, well, listen, what's more important? Oh, yes. <laughs> that priority, right? What's more important, uh, getting that fire break cut or, you know, maybe losing um, a small site? Uh, how do you mm-hmm. argue that? And it's not so much that we try to argue. I think what we try to do is it's not a matter of that the tribes want to hold up anything. They understand the need. They understand that it's a community that you are trying to, it's a life safety issue. Um, what the tribes have asked and continually ask is that if we pre-plan ahead, we certainly can have 
those conversations at that same time. So that means if you start off, if as I mentioned with that scenario that I just gave you, uh, Cal Fire does have some monitors on site that if they know they're getting ready to drop a blade down, they're going to call and hey, what do you think about this? And oh, can you move it five feet over? Or can can we look at another ridge? It that can be you know. something as simple as that. Correct. Wow, wow, and that's a nice compromise. It's mutual respect. Correct. It's it's respecting the culture, the heritage the really importance of those cultural sites and the artifacts that that may be there as well. Uh, really important. I never realized that it could be something as quick as uh, phone calls. Hey, and if you know ahead of time, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you know that the, the fire challenge, the battle is going to take you to a specific location, you have time to make those calls. I think we do. I mean, or they yes, do. That you they know what I mean? do. And I understand that there's going to be some instances where, you know, you look at some of the fires that we've had recently, the Mendocino complex, the car fire, those fa- those fires were fast moving and we get it. Sometimes that's just not going to be, you know, it's going to be challenged. Mm. Um, but when we talk about that pre-planning, that ahead of time, building those relationships, you know, trading cards at the site of a fire, you're pretty much already behind the eight ball. And right. so that's why we really encourage that we've got to have these discussions ahead of time from that you know, there is a California TIPO conference, which is a California Tribal Historic Preservation Conference, that uh, they invite, um, this this association invites, you know, CAL FIRE, invites uh, U.S. Forest Service, invites the state, different state agencies, so that we can address these issues ahead of time and not looking at it during an event. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's great. I mean, that when that does happen, that if they do have that thought, great. But like I said, we're going to be behind the eight ball. So the more that we can do uphand, you know, the first hand is going to be better for us than than waiting till the end. When is the next conference? Do you know yet? Um, they usually do it in uh, early fall. So we just had it okay. um, this last year, and it was well attended. And they become they're getting bigger and bigger. And I think, uh, unfortunately, they're getting bigger because look at the you know the different incidences that we've had since 2015. You know, since the Valley Fire and. And all the fires subsequent to that, and the mudslides and the floods. Um, but one thing that's good is that I think you know it's on everybody's mind that you know we have a community, we have communities out there that reside within those operational areas that really need to be uh, coordinated with, and really need to develop those relationships so that we can uh, ensure as much as possible that we are protecting their history um, and those sacred areas to them. So what's next for your office? What's on the horizon? Oh, gosh. Well, um, so um, in the Brown administration, he had developed an executive order, B-1011, which was directing every single state uh, state department and agency to develop a consultation policy. Uh, in essence, what we did is we modeled after our federal um, partners in how we are going to interact and how we are going to consult and work with tribal communities. Um, this current uh, administration, uh, the Newsom administration, is uh, is on that same wavelength. And as I mentioned earlier, when he uh, officially uh, issued the apology to tribes, he's moving forward with it. He understands the value of these tribal communities. Uh, they may be small in numbers, but they are very loud, and we need to ensure that we are working with them. And so with that, um, our, our department, we created our consultation policy in 2015. Uh, we brought the tribes together. We we took information from them. We had them give us input on 
how we can better work with them. You know, no policy is going to be good if you're not going to interact and get that feedback from them. We can't develop a policy in a silo and say, well, this is how we're going to do it. We need to get that feedback from them. But now we are at that point where we need to do a check-in. Okay, how are we doing? This is the first time we've ever had uh, this type of policy. You have uh, agencies that have had this policy even before the uh, executive orders, such as Cal EPA and uh, Cal Fire and um, I think uh, DWR. Um, So for us, this was new. And so we now need to to do a check-in. Okay, where do we need to readjust? Uh, Where do we need to add or, or take away? And again, we will be bringing the tribes back together in this next year and having that conversation and talking about um, part, some really tough stuff that have come up over the years. And are we really addressing the issues that you have brought to us back in 2015 to today? How are we, you know, what are we doing today to, to improve that? Oh, good, good. Well, all right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Something that may have forgotten? Um, I don't think I forgot. You hit a lot. <laughs> there is so much. And one thing, you know, if anything that I always share uh, and like to impart with anybody coming into the state of California, especially when we get into these large disasters, you know, like our FEMA partners and our other uh, Army Corps of Engineers, individuals coming in from out of the state of California. When you come into the state of California, understanding you're here, you're coming to bear with all your resources to help California out, but do your homework. Mm-hmm. Do your homework. Reach out. Look at, you know, if you know me or you know my office, uh, what are the tribes, Who? what tribes are affected, or what tribes are we going to be working with, and do a little bit of history. I mean, it's not that hard. You can, you know, even though some people say everything on the internet is not true, well, that is true. <laughs> go do a little research and then come back and ask me. Right. <laughs> there you go. It all depends on who your source is, and if you're the source, you're the source. All right. Denise Shemensky, the tribal advisor for Cal OES, and uh, you've been here for, wow, 20 years. Shh, don't tell anybody that. That is a long time. <laughs> yes, I have been. <laughs> All right. Well, great to have you here. Thanks again for your time. And uh, I feel like I've learned something today. Great. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I did learn a lot while producing that podcast, in fact. And I hope you did, too, while listening to it and had a little bit of fun as well listening to it. My sincere thanks to Denise for her time, information, and, of course, putting on this clinic in tribal relations. My thanks to you as well for listening and subscribing to All Hazards. But if you haven't, we'd like you to. Subscribe at any of your favorite podcast platforms, probably the one you're listening to this right now on. If you have any questions or comments, ideas even, email me at questions at caloes.ca.gov. That is questions at caloes.ca.gov. And be sure to go to oesnews.com and click on the podcast tab You'll find every single one of our podcasts that we've produced since the very beginning, 70 of them, in fact, and you'll see photos, even some videos there, as well as really important links that relate to each and every one of these podcasts, and they'll help give you a bigger and fuller understanding of each one of these topics, as well as some resources that you may not have known about. For everyone here in our Office of Public Information at Cal OES, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.